All right, and we are back for another episode of It Never Hurts to Ask. Uh, this is your host, Chris Graves, and I'm here with uh, my good friend Amy, we're going to call her. Uh, Amy is not her her real name. Um, Amy's lived a, uh, a very interesting life, and uh, I'm excited to, to dig into it. Um, kind of a quick synopsis of, of Amy's story. Uh, Amy uh, studied Arabic at university and uh, studied abroad in Syria. And while in Syria, uh, met a, a, from everything I've heard, a lovely gentleman <laughs> um, who she ended up marrying and moving to Damascus to be with, correct? Yes, correct. Um, and Amy lived in, in Damascus for a while. It was peaceful, uh, had a nice life. Yeah, it was really nice. And uh, was there when the uh, Arab Spring started and when the civil unrest kind of spread to Syria and the civil war broke out there? Um, and you've lived through, how many years is that? Seven. Seven years. You knew that off the top of your head. <laughs> yeah. Um, seven Counting. years. Yeah. Seven years of civil war. Um, and as I said, Amy is not her real name for uh, security reasons and for the safety of her, her family back home in Syria, we're going to... And here. Oh, yeah? Here and there, yeah. Well, we'll get into that, too. Yeah. <laughs> um, but for, for security purposes, we're using a pseudonym just to make sure everybody's safe. Um, but, uh, yeah, so let's get into it. Okay. Um, you studied Arabic? Yes, I did. Fully fluent? I am now. After, <laughs> I mean, you can't really be fluent doing um, an undergrad. Yeah. But you really need to live... Abroad, And that's why, you know, the university I went to started up a program where they would immerse students in the language by sending them over there. Yeah. But Did, I continued that. You know? Was Syria your first choice? Yes. Why? We had the option between Egypt and Syria. And at the time, everyone wanted Syria. Number one, because the dialect is a lot easier. Okay. If you learn Arabic, there's like the modern standard Arabic, which is kind of like old English, you could say. Yeah. And no one really speaks it. But the Syrian dialect is the closest to that modern standard. So it's easier to understand. And it sounds nice. Egyptian Arabic to me, it's just ugly. <laughs> Second part of that is the cultural dynamics in Egypt is a lot more conservative. And... It's just not a nice place to be. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. So... So I was one of the lucky ones that actually got sent. We had to take, like, a special test if we wanted to go to Syria, and the top students got selected to go to Syria. And my understanding, and again, I'm a know-nothing American, uh, is Syria was kind of the, the secular, modern, peaceful country yes. in the region for... A long time. For a long time, yeah. And it still is secular in government-held areas. Yeah. Yeah. So, I guess tell me a little bit about life in Syria during that time. So, so you you studied Arabic there. Yeah. I went it, to the University of Damascus. Okay. And is that where you met your... Yes, that's where I met husband? my significant other, my husband. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And... You, you guys hit it off pretty quick. Yeah. We got engaged 
after five days of meeting each other. <laughs> okay, well, way to hop in. Yeah. Um, and did you finish your your study abroad program and then come back to Texas? Yeah, and I then... had to come back because my visa or my residency was up because mm-hmm. it's only for a year if you're a student. So I had to come back. He actually worked. I couldn't really find work at the time because this was during the recession and all that. So I could really only get a part-time job. He actually saved up the money to get my ticket to fly me back. Now, did you guys get married while you were still a student or did you come back and then get married? I came back and then we got married. Awesome. How did his family? They were fine with it. Yeah. That's why I mean, I'm like his family is Muslim. I'm a Christian. But Syria was and is, I will say, the people of Syria are very secular and they don't care. You know? Yeah. What, and we'll get into these differences a little bit deeper into the podcast, but were they Sunni, Shia, Muslim? Let's say Shia. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. So move back to Damascus. Yeah. What did your parents think about that move? Well, at the time, my parents didn't know that I had a relationship. Yeah. But I told them, and it's true, I really loved Syria. And because of the way, I mean, it was so cheap. It was easy to live. I mean, I wanted to go back there just because of the dynamics. You know, if you compared the U.S. society and how it was functioning and the Syrian society. Yeah. And just like life, the standard of living was really good there. Yeah. And cheap. So you move you move to Syria. Yeah. Um you, you get married. Yeah. And this was in 2011. Okay. So how how long of marital bliss did you enjoy in Syria before things started to go south in terms of the conflict? 1 month. Oh wow. <laughs> we got married in February. The situation started in March. Oh wow. Yeah. And how did how did it look living on the ground there? Like how did when did you notice things start to change when things started to become uneasy? I mean, it was uneasy from the beginning because we were like no one expected it. No one thought it would happen. At the time, like a month prior, Libya was getting bad. Right. And we heard rumors that, you know, Syria's next. And everyone said, no, there's no way because Syria is a secular place. And, you know, people were happy. But there were, you know, things that influenced the situation, I guess. And I don't know. I mean, it's hard. What I know is not what Americans are told. Right. The story is a lot different. So uh, as an American, then the narrative we're told is um uh i believe uh bashar assad bashar bashar assad bashar assad yeah, yeah. Uh, i'm gonna call him uh, uh, uh assad in my yeah. crappy texas accent it's okay i will call him al assad because it just it comes out yeah. that way um the narrative here is uh assad was a dictator cruel repressive uh he, he lorded over a repressive regime and the Arab Spring spread to Syria, and uh, people wanted to rebel against that oppressive regime. And uh, freedom fighters, we will call them, uh, started to rise up. And I guess there were demonstrations, and 
the uh, Assad regime repressed and uh, pushed those uh, demonstrations back, which only inflamed the situation. Yeah. How much of that is accurate? What's What was your experience living there? It's pretty inaccurate. Well, how, how so? <laughs> well, first off, the Syrian government is a republic, They're, and they have a parliament. He is not... They have two presidents. He's the president of the republic. There's actually a president of the government that rules over the laws more. So kind of like a parliamentary system? Yeah, it is a parliamentary system. Oh, it system. is parliamentary. Yeah, okay. they have a parliament. And they're one of the only governments in the region that has women in top positions. Like his vice president is a woman. Uh, Buthena Shaban is her name. Mm-hmm. I mean, here's the thing. In the Middle East and pretty much any third world country, there's a lot of corruption. Right. And you have to understand about Syria, there's a lot of... The corruption goes along with sectarianism. Mm -hmm. So Bashar al-Assad is from a sect called the Alawites. They say that the entire government is Alawite, but that's not true. It's impossible because if you look at the demographics of Syria, 73% of the population are Sunni Muslim. I think it's like 12% are Shia. And then Alawites are very small percentage of that. And there's also Christians and Druze and Mershdis. I mean, it's a big melting pot. Right. But just the fact that 73% alone is Sunni, there's no, it's in, unfeasible that the entire government is Alawite. Right. Yeah. And your your in-laws are they Alawite? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um so were you, were you living in Damascus? I was living in Damascus. The problems that started were in Dara, which is south of Damascus. Mm-hmm. Um the narrative we were told was that some kids got their hands chopped off. No evidence was ever given to prove that. What I know from a guy who actually lives, he was my husband's boss and I worked for him too. He's from Dara. He's Horani. Anyone from Dara is called Horani. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was, he had, you know, relations within Dara with the government people. The one of the president's relatives was being corrupt with people. So there was an uprising about that. He, I think he was like the governor or something. So that's really where it started. It was really about corruption. And at the beginning, there were peaceful protesters, but it quickly escalated to violent protests. Did you... From the protesters themselves, not just the government. It was on both sides. So the, the protesters got a, a violent... Yeah. But this was from outside. That's the thing. There were people sending weapons in and funding extremists from the beginning. Right. And a lot of the sad part is the people that actually really did want to change that corruption got screwed. How so? Well, those people came in and they basically work like gangs. So they would come in and take and focus on the areas where the peaceful protesters were. 
and then basically say either you join us or we kill you. Yeah. So people really had no choice but to join. Do you these people? Do you think at all? So. I mean, this happened in my neighborhood. Right. We had demonstrations in my neighborhood. And there's another side of it. Um, I don't know if you've heard of Captagon. No. What's it's that? a drug. Okay. Um, Saudi Arabia was actually, and they still are smuggling this in. Uh-huh. Is it like a stimulant or? It was one of the drugs in the 70s that they used for like psychoanalysis, I don't know, that got banned in in America. Uh-huh. But it basically kind of makes you like a zombie. Really? Yeah. And another part is they focused on people who were really poor. So they would pay them money. And also, and I saw this like literally from my balcony. They would lace sandwiches with that Captagon and get people hooked on drugs to continue to fight with them. And this was like 2011. So I'm I'm Googling Captagon as we yeah. as we sit here because I'm recently a it. couple years ago they caught some Saudi prince smuggling in some like I don't know how many tons of it from Lebanon. Yeah, yeah. It's so I'm reading here for anybody curious. It's uh, an amphetamine um, which keeps users awake for long periods of time, uh, dulls pain, and creates a sense of euphoria. Yeah. Which, uh, and there have been reports of you know people fighting on the I don't I don't know what to call them the rebel side. Okay. <laughs> the rebel side that like they've been shot multiple times, but they just keep going and going and going like it doesn't affect them, and it's because they're strung out pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So. Backtracking a little bit, so the so the kind of beginning of this, you had anti-corruption protests. Yeah, that were actually peaceful. Le- they were peaceful, legitimate in your yeah. opinion. And what I saw, I mean, they were. Yeah, they were peaceful. Did you ever witness or hear about the government reacting or suppressing those peaceful protests a little harshly? I didn't witness it myself. Mm-hmm. We heard it, but. We also heard that the other side was shooting them. Right. And if you knew any government building before the war started, even after, um, they would have guards, quote unquote, outside with AK-47s, but they weren't loaded. Because they're so cheap. This is another corruption thing. They don't give them the bullets to defend themselves. Really? Yeah. So people had unloaded guns, and they were saying that it was those guards that were firing on people, but everyone knows that they, I mean, they don't have bullets, because the government is so corrupt, they take the bullets from the people that are supposed to be defending them, you know what I mean? So, so in your, your view, they're almost too corrupt to be effectively... Yes, uh, that's how corrupt it is, it's insane. Repressive. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, it's repression, but it's it's just every, everyone at the top gets everything. You know what I mean? Right. To the point where even now, um, the soldiers, they had 
food rations given to them. And this is in the Syrian Arab army. Mm -hmm. The officers stole that so they could sell it on the black market to get money. I mean, that's basically how it goes. So, so these protests are beginning. They're, they're turning violent. Um, I assume for a while you, you, you and your family thought, oh, this will die down. Yeah, everyone thought that. We'll ride through this. Yeah. When, was there a turning point that made you and your family realize that, oh, this is, this is bigger than we thought. Oh, this is going to affect us. Like, what was that turning point? It was July 17th, 2012, maybe 18th, when the Ministry of Defense was bombed. Mm-hmm. And I think this is like the husband, the husband of Bashar al-Assad's sister, who was the minister of defense, was assassinated with a bomb. And the fighters in Daraa had planned an infiltration into Damascus from the south to take over. And we were living basically on the highway that they were going to come and infiltrate the city through. And it it was bad a couple days before. In in what ways? Well, like I went to work. I'm a teacher. I teach English. Pretty much anyone who's living there that's a foreigner, they teach cuz that's it's the only job you can really do. Right. So I went to teach. I was out of school at that time. And I was trying to come back home. But there were people who were with the rebels on that highway who were sniping at government buses. They were just sniping at random. Shooting civilians, basically. Right. So I couldn't get home. My sister-in-law also got stuck on the opposite side. And then they brought out tires and started to burn the tires. The the rebels did? Yeah. Yeah. See, and that's interesting because the narrative... Uh, at least I've heard here in, in the States was that a lot of the snipers were government snipers no. sniping at civilians. No, they were people living, you know, who supported the rebels and they were waiting for their backup to come from the South to start the quote revolution, whatever. Right. Yeah. But they were sniping just to, you know, at random at these buses just because they were government buses that civilians take. I rode those buses home. Right. So my brother-in-law had to come take me, and we had to wait it out, basically, until it was safe for us to go back. The next day, it was okay, but it was kind of creepy. Yeah, I can't imagine. I had a bag packed because of that. Like, I knew, you know, maybe things are Like, just an escape bag in case you had to... Yeah, in case things... And it turned out to be true. Because the day after that... And this was during Ramadan, Uh which is the holy month. Right. Which... I mean, these people are extremists. They're Salafists. I don't know if we should talk about Salafi, Is Islam, that like and Wahhabism. Salaf- I always pr- pronounce it Salafi, same, yeah, same thing. Yeah, Salafi, okay. yeah. Yeah, so it's, my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, it's kind of a uber conservative, conservative um, super conservative wing interpretation of, wing of, of Wahhabism, which is in and of itself a hyper-conservative branch of Sunnism, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um and that's what a lot of these rebels are, right? Yes. Yeah. They uh, yeah, they pretty much all are. Yeah. Yeah. Um and that's what Al-Qaeda is. That's I mean, yeah. ISIS is. They're all that Osama bin Laden version of 
Islam. Yeah. If you want to call it Islam, because the people in Damascus that are Muslims, that are Sunnis, they say this is not Islam. And I agree. And Alawites are a form, like, a, I guess, an They're offshoot a sect of, of Shia? Of Shia Islam, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and there are, I guess, a, I've read about Twelvers. I don't know. Have you ever heard of the Twelvers? No. They're not Twelvers, but they're like the Twelvers. I don't know. They're well, what are Twelvers? I don't know. Because they're not Alawites. But they're similar, apparently. So it's an off. So the Twelvers are an offshoot of, of Shia? Yeah. Because it's really, it's hard to find information about the Alawites. Uh-huh. That's correct. I've read a lot of it, and it's like, no. <laughs> right. And they're very secretive. So I think if you read about the Twelvers, you'll get a better idea about the Alawites, because they're not as secretive as the Alawites and are. And Assad is Alawite yeah, as well, correct? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so you're living, things are starting to go to shit. Yeah. Um, I had a bag ready. When did, and, and I know your story a little bit just from staying in touch with you all these yeah. years. When did the... When did the Civil War finally reach your family and your neighborhood? Well, that was it. It was, you know, prior to those, you know, that day when the minister was assassinated, that it was the same day. Just everything popped off that same day. Everything went crazy in Damascus. When? And we got stuck in our home. And then these rebels, like, encircled our house with knives and swords to come and kill us. Because you were... We were not Sunni Salafists, Wahhabists, basically. Right. And it wasn't just, like, because we were Alawite. They did this to anyone that was not Salafist, Wahhabist. So other Sunnis... Other Sunnis, other Shias, Christians, Druze. Yeah. And they're still doing that to this day. And you you and your family effectively escaped. Yeah, we were very lucky because they How did were, you guys escape? Um, at the time, they had taken over the mosques in the area all of them yeah and uh-huh. they were using loudspeakers to call for jihad <laughs> which was like okay i'm gonna die now like that was the moment where i was like it's over right and then we looked outside and there were people around our house with knives and swords just at that moment the syrian army came to squelch their I don't know, their attack on the city, basically. And But dur- we were stuck in the crossfire between them and the Syrian army. And during that time, is that when you es- escaped? No, the- we had to wait until it calmed down, until they cut the electricity at about 5 o'clock. First thing to go in any kind of situation like this is your cell phones. That's something you should know. <laughs> is it because they cut them off or just everybody's trying to be on them so everything's jammed up? No, they cut them off so they don't have communication abilities. You know, they want their side to not be able to talk to each other, basically. Right. So everyone's cell phones are cut off. So we lost our cell phone coverage. At the time, my husband was not in Damascus. He was in Aleppo. He knew what was going on. And was able to take an airplane. The airplanes were still functioning at that time. 
to come back to Damascus, but he got stuck that night at the airport because the same rebels started to bomb the airport. So he was stuck at the airport. We were stuck until the next morning at about five o'clock in the morning. And the electricity had cut off about 5 p.m. the evening before. So we were without electricity and without cell phone coverage for about 12 hours. So we didn't, you know, I didn't know what had happened to him. And we went on to that same highway that they were trying to come into the city with. And all of these cars were driving by really fast. And then they started bombing again while we're out in the open. So I was the one, like my husband's family were with me. I literally got in the middle of the road and stopped this taxi. And I said, for the love of God, please stop. And he stopped for us. Yeah. Or else who knows? I mean, who knows what, have ha- what would have happened. So at this point, you, you flee your home. Yeah. Do you ever get to return to your home? I was able to go back maybe four years after that in 2016, 15, 16. And how was it? Very emotional. I cried. How was, what was the state of your house? House was okay. Um, was it looted, ransacked? Well, they both, both. Okay. So the rebels came. Because some neighbors said these are, you know, kufar. Do you guys know kafir? Kufar? No. Kafir means infidel. Kufar is the plural of that. Okay. So they said this house is, you know, full of infidels. And they were burning all the houses that were owned by infidels. And our neighbors, you know, people that my husband grew up with, they literally pointed, you know, this house, this house, this house. And if I recall, and tell me if I misremembered this, some of your Muslim neighbors actually helped lie to give you time yes. to escape. No, they helped us. They saved our house. How'd they do that? He, his name was Abu Jassim. Everyone needs to know about Abu Jassim because he has since passed. And I will never forget this man. Did, he, did he die in the Civil War he, of Natural Causes? He died from, I think, health problems. Oh, well, that's... Abu Jassim was like the nicest guy. He was not from the same sect. He was Sunni. My husband is Alawite. He swore on the Quran in front of them that we were not infidels. And then his son, Jassim, slept outside on the ground in the street in front of our house to make sure for like weeks to make sure that they wouldn't come and loot and burn our house. But then the Syrian side, the government got control of the area uh-huh. and they actually did go in, but they did not take anything. What would they do in your house? They were looking for weapons. Okay. The only thing that was, or like, you know, evidence of involvement with the rebels and all that. Right. Which, I mean, we're not with anyone. We're just living our lives. Right. You know, but our house was saved from both sides. They didn't do anything. The only thing was like, we have this wardrobe, my door, because the door was locked, so they ripped it open. But I mean, that's the only thing that was damaged. So where do you go to live after? Okay, so I was living in the slums. (laughs) Yeah, before you were run out. No, where I was living was the slums. 
the, the yeah the area that gotcha. this happened we moved to another slum is it slummier at this one yeah yeah and is it is it worse because of it's just a worse neighborhood or was it worse because of the civil war limiting supplies or it's worse because of it's like i don't want to say this but it's true it's pretty predominantly military there the like, slum you moved to yeah uh-huh which in a way is safe it's safer for us to live there but because it's military the government really doesn't have any control over it so it's pretty much lawlessness so, this is the corruption again oh i see <laughs> this is corruption because you would think it would be more, more law control because no. of the military no because it's military it's out of control because they have the power because to they have the power and if and... anyone you know stepped on someone's toes then one of the big top top officers could come in and cause a big ordeal and there's nothing they can do interesting yeah and there's a lot of like militias there they're not government but they're militias but they're really like gangs i mean let's be honest yeah yeah we've had some run-ins with them Uh, give me an example or two i was moving recently we were trying to get out because we were living in an area that was really ghetto it's got two sides of it. Your there's your slum or Damascus in our general? Our slum. Okay. So there's like a nice side, nicer side. It's not that great, but it's better than the other side. And we had been living in that house for a long time. And it was just, it was too, too much. Because of that, there's just like an energy from them. I don't know. It's yeah. bad. It's kind of like living in Compton or something. You You don't want to live there. Bad things were happening there. I don't want to talk about it, but things... I witnessed, I shouldn't talk about, uh-huh. by those people. Um. So, and we were living pretty much right across from them. We were waiting to move, because if you're a foreigner now, you have to get a security approval to move. So we were waiting on this approval. For you. For me, basically. And they said it was going to happen on Thursday. Well, it didn't come through on Thursday. So we had been planning Friday in Syria is the holiday. It's like Friday and Saturday here. It's Saturday and Sunday. Okay. It's the weekend in Syria. It's Friday. My husband only has Friday off. So we were like, okay, we'll start moving on Thursday and then use Friday. Well, it didn't happen. We went to bed three o'clock in the morning. These people bang on our door and come in. Same thing. They searched through all of our stuff and they ripped every box that I had packed. And it's technically illegal for them to do that because of my husband's standing yeah. in the country. Yeah. But they did it anyway. And you can't say no. Right. You can't say no to them. So I want to change topics a little bit. Yeah. Um, to anybody uh, listening, uh, my friend Amy uh, is a, a a white woman. Yes. <laughs> um, what is both before the violence broke out and after, what is it like living in Syria as a white American woman? Hard. <laughs> Why? <laughs> before, it was a lot easier because it was safer. You know, yeah, 
It was safer. You didn't have to worry. People were, they still are very welcoming. That's the thing. Syrians have like the biggest hearts in the world. And they love, love, love to welcome foreigners to their country. So me being there, sometimes I get like, whoa, you're here. But I also speak the language fluently, which also trips a lot of people out. Yeah, I bet. Like I recently saw one of my professors. She's here in America. And she taught me there in Syria. And she was just like, I can't believe you've been living there and you know what you know and you speak the language so well. It's shocking. So, and she asked me the same thing. Sometimes I get that, whoa, you're here. This is awesome. Thank you for being here. Thank you for staying here. But then usually people who are working with the government or have government ties, they kind of are leery yeah they're leery about me yeah Yeah. and i you can feel it i mean you can see it and i get asked you know kind of like interrogatory questions interrogatory they're like asking me my political opinions my religious opinions you know and are you honest or do you do you lie i'm honest yeah yeah i'm honest i'm not gonna lie but there's also part of it you kind of have to like play up what they want to hear right like yeah. what well you know like i don't know <laughs> like can you give uh like any example i mean that you're with you're against the rebels and it's true i am against the rebels because they came to kill me i mean fair <laughs> it is what it is um so i'm sure some people listening to this are thinking uh you know White American girl living in Syria, a civil war breaks out. Why didn't you just pack it up and move home? Because I'm married. And I guess I'm a Texan, so it's like stand by your man. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of my principle type thing. So you so you had the opportunities to leave, but you wanted to... I actually to. didn't for four years um, because they would not finish our paperwork for our marriage. Uh-huh. We had to get, that's another corruption thing. We had to find, they have a word for the person who gets things done. It's called WASTA. Uh I didn't have WASTA, so I needed to find WASTA in order to get it done. Because even Syrians can't really get that paperwork done. Without money having to change Without money and without knowing someone and someone to push it through. Mm -hmm. But it took us four years to get it done. So had I left... Because of the political and diplomatic situation, there were no visas for me to get back in. I see. So you I needed that have, marriage official before. Because I didn't have permanent residency. Right. I had residency. You know, they used my marriage. I had a contract with the court saying that we were married, but we didn't have the final. They have a book called The Family Book there. Right. And I think I've seen a copy of yours. Yeah, that's what they wouldn't give us. It took us four years. And that makes it official. And once you get the family book, then you can get permanent residency, which I now have. So if you want tomorrow, you can fly back and... Yeah, I can go and come Um, as I please. So traveling to and from Damascus, I know you've visited the state. I mean, you're visiting now. Um, You visited a couple years, right? Yeah, 2015. Yeah, three three years years ago. ago. Um, is it easier getting into Syria or getting into the United States? What's the, 
I think getting in both places is easy. Where where do you I had trouble in Dubai mm-hmm. in 2015. They said it was a random check or a random, I don't know, thing. It was not random. They had like on my ticket, the airline had marked it and they highlighted it. So it was pretty obvious that it wasn't random. Right. And knowing me, knowing where I'm coming from and the political position of the Emirati government, it's pretty obvious that they're and checking explain me because... to explain to people out of the loop what that political position is. Well, I mean, they support and fund the rebels. Right. So they have political and monetary things happening in Syria. Right. So anyone that's coming from there, like Syrians, they're not allowed in. They can't get a visa in to the Emirates unless they have family, I think. So and you're able to pass through because there. you're an American? Yeah, because I'm an American, but they're going to check me, you know. Right. And the same thing happened this time, but because of this Trump thing, I don't know. Travel ban. Anyone coming from the Middle East now is checked in the same manner. So, but And, and they're checked in Dubai or, or where you're connecting. They're not, you're not checked when you yeah, land here in America. Yeah. Before you get into the States, they check you. That's interesting. Yeah. Bomb swipes and have they you, do like a pat down. And full have body you had pat-down. any interactions with U.S. authorities regarding your travel and well, marriage and, and all of that? When I was leaving the last time in 2015, TSA. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, it's not TSA. It's the airline. It's the same thing. It's the Emirati government. Mm-hmm. Well, what happened when you were leaving? Well, they did the same thing, like this crazy check i had to at the time you could still choose or not to do the full body scan right i still say no to those do they let you uh yeah they wouldn't let me they were like you have to do this really so far as i understand it and i i've used my my white privilege to to say no yeah i just walk up very politely when you're in line for the body scan hey uh i don't don't want to go through that. that i elect for the body pat down no i had to do both really yeah and I had electronics on me that were not charged. This is another lesson. If you're leaving or going anywhere, make sure all of your electronics are charged. Yeah. So I had to go back to my family, give them the electronics that were not charged, and come through and do it again. So, uh, so is it if you if you can't power up your electronics, you're not allowed to bring them on board? Like they have to see yeah. that they're functioning? And well, just... and I know that they're checking to make sure that they're not bombs. Right. You know? Right. Which I I totally understand. And I'm, you know, I get checked a lot in Syria, too. We have checkpoints all over the place. Yeah. And going into certain buildings, you're going to get patted down. I mean, that's just a no-brainer. So I've dealt with a lot of security people. Same thing because of my neighborhood, because it's all security, we have checkpoints going into the neighborhood and out of right. the neighborhood. So... You know, it wasn't a big deal to me. Have you ever been questioned by Syrian authorities for being an American? Well, like when those guys came into my apartment at three o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. They were looking at our papers and they were like, what? You're American? But I'm legit. You know, I'm not there. A lot of people think I'm a spy or what. I'm not. I'm none of that. Here in the States, when I was leaving, they asked me 
she looked at my passport and she was like, do you work for the federal government? And I was like, no. Yeah. I'm in this crazy situation. I adore you. I feel like you would make a terrible spy. I don't yeah, feel like Yeah, there's no way. You're not like slick me? enough. Yeah. No. You're not smooth enough to be I'm a not, spy. No offense. But I've been accused of it a lot in yeah. Syria. A lot. Because people are leery and they should be. Yeah. You know, I understand that too. And and we're going to get into some of that here in a little bit. Um, I also wanted to ask when... What is the day-to-day life like in a civil war? What happens to your electricity, your food, the economy? Like, Because life doesn't stop because you're in a civil war, which is kind of the impression in the media that everybody's just immediate refugees. But life goes on. What's that life like? Or they're hiding at home and, you know, freaking out. It doesn't. Like you still went to school and taught? Yeah. What's what's the day? How does the day-to-day life change in a civil war? Well, I mean, we have bombs flying, you know, random at random. What's the closest one's gotten to you? Well, my my husband was in a car bomb. Was in one? Yeah. In I, the explosion. I didn't hear about that. What happened with that? Well, he was going with a guy home. He was like taking a friend. He and a friend were taking another guy home. Mm-hmm. And it was like they were on top of this bridge. So the bomb exploded below the bridge. But they made it out, like, with nothing, which is shocking. My husband had, like, a scratch. I think the glass in the guy's car blew out, but they were fine. So it's stuff like that. We've had rockets fall pretty close to our house. What's what's pretty close to you in a civil war? Because I would imagine pretty close to you in a civil war is probably different than pretty close to me. Like the Austin bomber... the other week. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was how... a couple miles from me, but that no, felt pretty close. I mean, I would say like 500 feet maybe wow. <laughs> from our house. I mean, that was bad because we were asleep and we woke up and you can tell a rocket by how the sounds. I now know the sounds of the different shellings. Yeah. You told me about that. Tell, tell people listening some of the so differences. So a mortar shell sounds, if you listen to like one of the public buses breaking, it sounds like like that high pitch sound like yeah when it's breaking yeah and then there'll be like a thud and once my husband and i were actually walking and a bus started to break and i knew i saw the bus he didn't see it but then i was looking at him to see if he would have the reaction like it's a mortar shell and he did and i was like ha ha so that's one thing mortar shells sound like that and they're a lot they don't do as much damage i mean yeah they can kill you Right, but they have to hit pretty directly. Yeah, you have to basically be, I mean, it's your luck. Yeah. Pretty close. Rockets do more damage. They actually make the sound. So that's what we had woken up to when they were firing rockets. And we were, I mean, you can tell when it's close and when it's far. Yeah. Yeah. That's so bizarre. I know. (laughs) And it's weird that I know that too. Do you, so having lived in close proximity to rocket and bomb attacks and and all of those do you do you have any ptsd do you think you do or do you think okay. you coped pretty well like what's psychologically like last that time i came here in 2015 yeah you were talking about like electricity and like we didn't really ha- i think we had electricity maybe four hours a day at that time so there was rationing oh yeah 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 i mean we were lucky to get 
we couldn't really take showers at the time, hot showers. I mean, you could take a cold shower. Or if you wanted to, you could heat up the water. But then we didn't really have gas to heat the water up on the stove. So it was really like I was coming back from extremes to extreme, you know, like extreme, like no water, no electricity to no take gas, the hottest bath ever as long as you want 24 hour hot water food that doesn't spoil in your refrigerator because you have electricity 24 hours a day. Well, I don't have an air conditioner, so that's always nice coming home to AC Yeah, because we don't have AC at home. Which has been an adjustment, but I'm used to it now. Yeah. Yeah. Heat is a big... I think heat... People here are very, like, I don't want to say snobby, but they're kind of snobby about... Spoiled about their AC, but when you get down to it, heat is way more important than the AC. Yeah? Yeah. Because it gets cold. Winter sucks. In Syria? Anywhere. I mean, like, real winter without heat Mm -hmm. sucks. Yeah. And there, you know, a lot of people in Syria have died from freezing to death because they there's no fuel. What's what are the food prices like there? Okay. Everything price-wise has gone up because of the inflation 10 times the original pre-war prices. Is it inflation of the currency or is it a shortage well, it's of It's devaluation of the currency. Okay. And there's also economic shortages because roads are blocked. Right. Things can't be transported. Things can't stay good because of the electricity. So people are having to buy more stuff. Yeah, or and the other part of it is, you know, salaries in Syria have not gone up. So like the I guess the average salary is thirty five thousand Syrian pounds. And what's that convert to? So the dollar before the war was forty seven Syrian pounds. To the dollar. So that means your $35,000 average salary was worth $745. A year. Uh, yeah. Which, no. A month. A month. Which okay. isn't bad. That's good. I wish I had that now. Huh. I wish. Now, the Syrian pound, and it changes. That's another part of the problem is the prices can change by the hour depending on the dollar. So basically, Syrian currency is bitcoin yeah and it well and it's totally unstable so like if some guy at a supermarket bought a whole bunch of stuff when it was higher he's not gonna sell it at if it goes down he won't sell it at the lower price because he's gonna lose right a lot of money so prices just stay up really high so thirty five thousand today is worth seventy four Five dollars. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, your salary is worth seventy-five dollars, but the prices are still the same as pre-war. You would need seven hundred and forty-five dollars to live a decent life, and that's why. I mean, I'm very lucky. My husband has two jobs. Mm-hmm. I work. I get a decent. I mean, it's decent, but with combined our three salaries. We're very, very, very fortunate, despite living in the slums, despite living in bombings, despite no electricity. It could be a lot worse. Right. Yeah. So my understanding in from from researching this, trying to stay up to date on Syria, is that 
um, ISIS, a lot of the rebels have been pushed back pretty yeah. significantly that yeah. the Syrian government's And that's why my over. culture shock this time isn't as bad. Because things are starting to get a little bit yeah, better. Yeah, because now I have, hey, I have 24-hour electricity. It's not this big deal coming here to like a hot shower. I can get one there. Right. So PTSD-wise, I think I had more. I did have a situation last time. I was in a bank, and this guy came up and just, he was an old man, nice old man. You know how old men do that here, and they just talk to you like, yeah. hey, how's your day? What's going on? He did that to me, but I, I don't know what happened. I just freaked. I freaked out. No idea why. Yeah, it just happened. It's like, huh. who is this guy? And I guess you're a lot more leery and conscious of your surroundings after living through a war. So you don't really have, it's hard to trust people more like you used to. Yeah. So some random guy coming to talk to me just freaked me out. Wow. Huh. And I went and I did my banking thing and then I ran to the car and locked the doors. It was like, oh. Huh. Yeah. So I have situations like that. Um, so with things improving in Damascus and in Syria at large, has the general mood of, of the people around you changed or are people still leery from years of war? I mean, people are feeling better safety wise, but there's a lot of trauma. I mean, war is trauma. It's traumatic. So... And again, my family and my husband and I, we're very lucky because we haven't had these crazy situations. I mean, we've had comparatively to like an American life. It's crazy. But there's if you compare other people in Syria, I mean, we've been pretty lucky. Because Damascus, for all the violence Damascus saw, is nothing compared to like Aleppo. Yeah. Yeah, I would say. Um. And like Raqqa and Deir Zor, they they take the cake. Yeah, I because mean, that's, that was ISIS, ISIS. That was hardcore. ISIS. And that's also where, when the Syrian government pushes people out, they push them to Raqqa, don't they? Or not necessarily. What do you mean? I was under the impression that when there were ceasefires or there were agreements, that they just kind of no. They're going to Idlib. Oh, they're going to Idlib. And is that just in your opinion? Is that the Syrian government just kind of corralling them to fight the next fight, or? Well, the headquarters of those groups are all in Idlib. So there's this new ministry with the Syrian government. This is the stuff they don't tell you on the news. Mm -hmm. This ministry is called the Reconciliation, Ministry of Reconciliation. And before they actually fight, when they want to take back an area, that ministry and their representatives go in there and talk to these people and try and make deals with them to say, hey, lay down your arms. We will escort you by bus. We'll pay for it and take you to your headquarters where you can be with your people. So like Aleppo, they'll go in and say, hey, yeah. you want free train? We'll transport you out to Idlib, out of Aleppo. Just lay your arms Under up. the protection of the Syrian army. Yeah. And a lot of groups have agreed to that. Some groups have not, like... In East Aleppo and in East Gouda, they have not done that. But yeah. now, actually, in East Gouda, recent, uh, this past week, I think, there's Ahrar al-Sham, Felik al-Rahman, and Jaysh al-Islam. They agreed to it, and they left. One of the things that struck me in a lot of our communication when you've been in Syria has been through Facebook. Yeah. Um, 
one of the things that struck me early on in the Syrian, uh, we'll call it the uprising, uh, was you posted pictures of some of the quote unquote moderate rebels and they had a, an Al Qaeda flag, flag behind yeah. them. Yeah. Um, in, in your experience from what you've seen, from what you know, are there actual by a U.S. context moderate rebels there are there moderate what rebels is fighting the U.S. context that's what we don't understand that like what does that even mean because to us they're terrorists right I mean so there's no rebel group or faction there that you that you look at that you learn about and you're like yeah you know what I'm I'm okay with them the only thing that I'm okay with is the the political opposition but none of them are in Syria they're all in Turkey. They're or in Europe. They're not in Syria and they're not fighting. Yeah. Yeah. The groups on the ground are militants. They're insurgents. They're there for Salafist and Islam or Wahhabist ideals. Yeah. And taking over and instilling those views and I guess that reality within the people. Have you encountered any of these uh, i'm going to use isis as a, as a very broad term just for sake of this conversation so yeah. we're not breaking down the minutia of all the different rebel factions. i'm just going to yeah, call there's them all like ISIS. a million yeah. i mean there's too many i'm going to call them all isis just for sheer simplicity's sake okay. have you had any like face-to-face -face interactions with anybody yeah in ISIS? like when they i mean those were the people that came to kill us i mean did you actually interact with or talk with them at all? Or were you just hold up? Like, did you have you had any type of conversation or interaction face to face? I mean, those people, yeah, we knew them before. I mean, they were our neighbors. Oh, really? Yeah. And then, I mean, they didn't show that that's what their ideals were before. Do you and think then they harbored like, them or that they, they harbored it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And this actually, if you know anything about Syria, this goes back to the 80s with the Muslim Brotherhood thing and Hafiz al-Assad, Bashar al-Assad's father. Explain that for us. Okay, so Syria's history is really wrought with lots of issues. But, you know, the U.S. government has been trying to basically control Syria for a long time for their own political And things. they used to be buddies with Assad. Is that because for a while they thought they could... Yeah, and him? that's what they do. I mean, they were buddies with Gaddafi before. Right. You know, I mean, that's just how it goes. Um, But I think this was prior to when they were buddies. Okay. Because I think they were buddies in the 90s. I believe so. Yeah, this was in the 80s. So, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, if, I don't know if you know, but Egypt and Syria were actually a union in the 60s. Part of the, the Arab Union? or is No, that they were their own union. They they were their own country, basically. Really? Yeah, and Israel came in and they split them up and blah, blah. But part of that was from that, um, the Muslim Brotherhood are actually founded and located in Egypt. So they came into Syria through that. They also support, not all of them, but a lot of them support Wahhabist ideals. So the same type of sectarian scenario happened in the 80s and it was stopped by Hafez al-Assad. Mm -hmm. So a lot of those people and Hafez al-Assad was really hardcore. 
He was not a nice man in treating those people. And he treated them very badly. And a lot of this torture, you know, you hear about torture in prisons and stuff. Right. I haven't heard about that now, but I've, you know, any person I've talked to who harbors anger, it's because their relatives back in the 80s was tortured under the Hafez al-Assad government. Bashar al-Assad was not supposed to be the president. His brother was actually supposed to be the president. He died. Bashar al-Assad was just thrust in there. And he was an, he's an optometrist, He's an optometrist, he? yeah. And he was in London when his father died, I think. And they basically said, hey, you have to come back now. And this is like, you know, there's... He's kind of the face of the Syrian government. There's a lot of people running the show from his father's generation that are controlling. And that's where the real corruption is. He has even said that, you know, during the beginning, he wanted to leave office, but they wouldn't let him. Because they would lose their little No, Assad is control. not democratically elected. He was, yeah, elected, yeah. When was the last election? When did they do that? I guess 2014 was the last one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When they redid the Constitution and they had an election. And actually, you know, people say they were forced to vote. It's not true. The Syrian embassy in Lebanon, had they had to keep the election polls open. I think for another day, because there were so many Syrians waiting to vote at the embassy. And and these are the refugees who have left. Are coming to the embassy to vote for Assad? Yeah. Interesting. Yes. And they, I mean, they don't tell you about that. Yeah. I think he had like an 80 or 70% popular vote. And how many... Uh, other other candidates, candidates were running. There were three, including him. Okay. Yeah. So two others aside from him. I can't remember their names. Right. So we've touched on a little bit. We're already creeping up on an hour. I don't want to keep you too late. Okay. Um. One thing I'd like to to hear your opinion on is. I'm sure when you're in Syria, you're staying up to date with U.S. news, at least some. Somewhat. What are some of the narratives that you've seen us being told that, in your opinion, are just demonstrably untrue? What are some, what have you heard that you just go, you know what, I've lived here and that's just not true? Yeah. The the bombing of the schools and hospitals, Mm -hmm. they were like physically schools and hospitals, but they were not functionally schools and hospitals. Explain. Um, so the rebels, wherever they are, they take over those government buildings and use them as either bomb factories, prisons, torture chambers, or Sharia courts, or like their government, I don't know, thing, whatever. So those areas, they were bombed because that's where there was concentrations of these leaders of those groups, basically. Right. And school is not allowed with them unless it's a Sharia school. And not every kid can learn there. Uh, My husband teaches children who have actually escaped this. 
and they lived it, you know, so I've heard firsthand from children who have lived under that and were able to get out by the grace of God. I mean, I don't know how they escaped. And they said, you know, we weren't allowed girls. No way. You're not allowed to go to school because you're a girl. Right. Um, boys, it depends on your family if you're accepted into the school and you only learn Wahhabist, Salafist ideas, basically. You're not taught science and math and English and Arabic, you know. You're taught the Quran the way they want you to learn the The way Quran. they want you to learn it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, are there any other uh, false narratives that you've heard that you want to dispel? The white helmets. Explain that. I've noticed you, you talk a lot oh, about God. that. What, so tell everybody, I guess tell everybody the our version of what white helmets are and then tell them your Well, you view. guys know them as these, the Syrian Civil Defense, correct? Mm -hmm. And they're a non-profit NGO there to help civilians. And in your experience, your opinion, what are what are they actually? They're a PR machine for these rebel terrorists. How so? Well, I mean, there's plenty of video and photo evidence of them being like um, a lot of times people who are punished by these terrorist courts are shot. What is that in a firing squad? Yeah, firing squad. So there will, I mean, they'll fire squad these people, whoever they are, innocent people, and then... The white helmets are waiting behind the people shooting them to come and, quote, save them. I mean, and there's video evidence of them flying the Al-Qaeda flag. Um, in East Aleppo, the actual building for the white helmets is right within the HQ of Nusra Front, who are basically Al-Qaeda in right. Syria. So, and there's actually documents that they found in those buildings that show that they are working together. And it is, you know, the person who funded them or started them is someone who worked for the British. It's like their version of CIA. British intelligence. Yeah, I don't want to, I don't know what they're actually called. Um, And the British government has funded them to make this PR thing that way they can smuggle in weapons to these people because really these governments they want the Syrian government to fall for their own reasons for their own thing right so it's an easy way for them to get money and supplies to these rebels quote-unquote in order to continue the fighting and that's interesting I was listening to a different podcast uh last week with a, a reporter who did a lot of uh, reporting in Syria. And she said that in her experience from her reporting, the Syrian civil war probably would have died and fizzled out years ago if it hadn't become a proxy war. Yeah. With... Funding under the table. A lot of the stuff that's happening, it's really, you, I mean, you don't see it happening, but it's happening that way. And that's why it's just, it, makes me so upset that they are actually using them as this nonprofit NGO who is supposed to be non-biased and whatever, but they're not. So. And they're asking you guys to send them money. That's just like, um, 
And an NGO means that they are non-governmental, right? They have no affiliation with the government. But all these governments are sending them money. Right. So they're not an NGO. And there's also a lot of testimony from the people that were trapped inside wherever these people were who say that, you know, the white helmets only helped the rebels. They did not help regular civilians. Have you encountered any Russians? So, as I understand it, the Russians support the Assad regime. Yeah. Is China? I don't know if they support them, but they have, like, under the Hafez al-Assad government in the 50s, I think, he knew that the U.S. was pretty much out to get the Syrian government. So his response to that was to really bolster his relations with Russia. And China? China, I mean, kind of. China really, they kind of exploit any economic situation they can, basically. Right. There's a lot of oil and gas in Syria, which is why there's a lot, a lot of, you know, U.S., and Russian involvement in Syria, because it's kind of like a race to who gets the contracts. For the pipelines? Yeah, for the pipelines, because uh, they wanted to build this pipeline through Qatar, mm-hmm. up through Iraq. Uh, the U.S. is friends with Qatar. They have Iraq. They needed Syria to get it to Turkey, which would then go to Europe. And then the Russians but wanted to Syria build like said an, no. And, and the Russians wanted to build an east-west pipeline, didn't they? Yeah. yeah. So it was like this Russian-American quagmire and the Syrian government went with Russia because they have diplomatic relations with them from right. the 50s. And And they have in my opinion they have that sovereign right, which is yeah, not a popular opinion, but it's, but I mean it's what they did. The Russian government also their only base in the Mediterranean is in Syria. So they also have kind of like a military aspect. I've also, you know, talked to people, which was an interesting point of view. Um, the Greek Orthodox, Mm -hmm. which I know like the majority of Christians in Russia are Orthodox Christians. One of their main, I don't know, important religious places. I don't know, is actually in Syria. So there's also this religious side to it. So you've got like economic with the gas and the oil, military with their military base, and then cultural with societal with the orthodox issue. So they're trying to protect all of those assets. Do they really care? I don't know. I mean, I think every government involved is really just it's all there. power projections. Yeah, and they're there for their own thing. Right. You know, Which at the end of the day. kind of the definition of a proxy war. Yeah. Yeah. And even the Syrian government right now is doing stuff for their own thing. Sure. I mean. Do you, do you see an end to it or? Right now, no. <laughs> yeah. No. Um, so we're about to get into some questions that, uh. People have uh, submitted that they'd like answers to. Okay. Um, but I wanted to, to kind of give an update on why you're here. Yeah. So you came to visit. I came um, to visit. My dad had some health issues. So mm-hmm. I was actually coming because I haven't seen the guy in three years. And then he had some problems. Right. Which he actually retired because of. How's he doing now? He's okay. He's better. Yeah. 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 Um, I got here. 
day before Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving happened. Day after Thanksgiving, I found out that I am pregnant. Congrats. Thanks. <laughs> it's good. I mean, we've wanted kids. It's kind of crazy having having a kid under the situation that we're living in and me being American, my husband being Syrian in this political turmoil and climate. It's kind of difficult. So because of that, you have not gone home as planned. Yeah, and because of the sanctions on Syria by the U.S. government and the EU, um, medical treatment isn't that great anymore. But it used to be. It used to be awesome. Yeah. It used to be like some of the best in the in the region mm-hmm. and the cheapest. So a lot of people would, you know, come during the summer from all over oh. to get you know, their teeth done, have surgery, whatever. Is your plan to go, so basically having the kid, have the here, kid here and then go back go afterwards? Back, yeah. Be, and uh, Because of my husband's standing, immigration standing, he can't get in the country. I don't want to keep my child from my husband, you know, it's right. his right to. Of course. Well, we're hoping, you know, and it this is also tentative on the situation. If things get bad, no, I won't go back. How's that been with you two? Do you guys stay? I assume you guys We talk every day, yeah. Yeah. Phone calls or Skype or? We use WhatsApp. Okay. Which is, you know, pretty yeah. much Skype. Everyone in Syria uses WhatsApp. It's kind of like. Everybody outside of America uses, uses WhatsApp. WhatsApp. Okay. Yeah. So it's not like an American thing? No. I, um, I have it from different foreign friends who visit. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good to know. Yeah. It's pretty popular, yeah. I guess, outside of the U.S. What do people use here? Just texting iMessage or whatever with their iPhones. Yeah, see. And in Syria, also because of the sanctions, iPhones don't work. Really? And it's illegal to buy. Not by the Syrian government, by Apple, the company. Like, you can't... They just deactivate their... Like, they brick their phones if they're in Syria? Well, you can't update it. You can't do anything. You know? And if you buy a phone here and say, hey, I'm going to Syria, they can refuse to sell it to you. And they actually did this to someone who was speaking Farsi with a friend. Mm-hmm. They because they thought they were Iranian, they refused. Because Iranian Iran is one of those countries that is banned. Have you? I'm, I'm going on a tangent. Have you visited Iran? No, I have not. Here it's lovely. I that's what I hear too. And I hear they're actually be... surprisingly friendly to yeah. Americans. No, they're really friendly, and it's that's the same thing in Syria. I yeah. mean, they're very welcoming. I've heard the same thing. But I don't know about Iran. I know it's it's a lot more difficult to go as an American. You have to have someone with you always, like a, a guide. Really? Yeah. So kind of like North Korea. Yeah. I mean, well, it's but not... Worse, but North Korea is way worse, of course. Yeah. Because in North Korea, what I've heard is that you can only go to certain places. Yeah, too. where they'll let you. But I know in Iran, you can go wherever. You just have to have someone with you. So they don't restrict where you go. You yeah, just have you just to have, 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 have with you. this person you. with you. And I think you, the only way to get the visa is through the Pakistani embassy here. Because there's no Iranian embassy. Right. Which is a problem now for both me and my husband. There's no longer a U.S. embassy in Syria, and there's no longer a Syrian embassy in America. So a lot of our problems about coming here and being able to travel and stuff, it's tingent so on who that. Do you, so like, I know in, in North Korea, if heaven forbid something happens to you as an American in North Korea, 
you're told to go through this i believe it's the swedish embassy has kind of a reciprocal yeah, agreement yeah we use the norwegian the norwegian and i was able to actually renew my passport through them okay which is cool yeah i didn't think it would happen but it did nice yeah so let's go to uh, a couple questions people have submitted that okay. are curious about you and i've already talked on this some but uh what's your your perception of the u.s's involvement like i said about any government i mean they're there for their own benefit the u.s has a lot of they're there to support their allies they're there to get contracts you know a lot of i don't know if you've ever heard of neoliberalism yeah yeah a lot of that is like the shock doctrine and disaster politics. U.S. government uses it a lot. What they do is they go in, they destroy the country, and then they buy the contracts to rebuild that country later on, which gets you know the companies here a lot of money, basically defense contractors and you know anyone, basically any company. Banks get a lot of money. Yeah. So that's I know that's part of the plan. Big part of it too is the gas and the oil, the pipelines. Yeah, they want to control that because um, in the east they have gas, which is why the U.S. is mainly based over there in Raqqa and Deir Ezzur. Um, they also have some influence, and I know they're there um, in the Mediterranean because they found like huge oil fields in the Mediterranean. But Syria is a tricky situation because of that Russian base that's in the Mediterranean off the Syrian coast. So I don't know. It's, I mean, that it's uh, dangerous. Very dangerous. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you think there's anything that could have been done to avoid the civil war? Do you think it was? No. I think it was planned. By outside forces? Or, yes. Outside yeah. forces, yeah. Um. In order to get this money. I mean, there's a lot of resources that they want to tap into. Right. Yeah. And war and in the, at the end another, of the day is is money. Yeah. And to insert a more friendly... Person who will go along with what they want. Yeah. Um, Which we have a history of... Long history of doing that. Sure. Yeah. 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 So it's the same story. It's just different place. Um. At... Right now... I guess put put your magic wand on or magic hat on whatever you want to fucking call it. <laughs> um, what could be done to stabilize Syria to fix the situation? The like the thing that's impossible but would stop it. Yeah, is if every government involved that's funding the situation just stopped funding them. Do you think that would result in? Assad's regime just slowly taking back control and restoring order. Yeah, but you know it might not. It might mean that he would go too because they have this new constitution, which I think they're going to amend. That's part of what the opposition wants in yeah. these talks. They want to create a new constitution. So who knows? I don't know what's going to happen. And basically, all these talks with you know the UN, it's kind of a joke because nothing ever gets done. Yeah. Yeah. How rampant is the sectarianism there? I mean, do you mean like the danger, the violent sectarianism or sectarianism on a general basis? 
Um, I'm thinking more on a general basis. Yeah, it's ramped up. Yeah. It was not like that before in Syria. People didn't really care who you are, what you were. Um, part of the thing about Syria is, like I was saying, there's a lot of demographics. Those demographics play out where you live. So, like, there's neighborhoods. Like I said, where I live is like an Alawite slum. There's the Christian quarter. Druze have their own neighborhood. Sunnis have their own neighborhood. Shias have their own neighborhood. So now if you are not from that sect and you go into another neighborhood, people kind of know you're not them. Right. And people are leery of you. Another thing is last names also kind of show what sect you're from. Not all last names, but a lot of last names can show. So people will ask you, you know, like, what's your last name? So they know. They'll ask these like underhand questions, you know, like where you're from, who your family is. So they know what you are. Yeah. Yeah. Which wasn't a thing before at all. Do you think as the as the Civil War ramped up, people kind of retreated to their to their own group? group. Yeah. Because that's security, you know? Sure. But even then, not. There's a lot of people in the in the group that are screwing people in the group over. Right. You know, it's war. Yeah. Very self-interested. Yeah. And it's dog eat dog. You have to survive. Survival of the fittest. Uh, so here's a here's an interesting question. Living through kind of the height of the Civil War, did you establish kind of a new normal? Like, was it just a day... Was every day different? Was it chaos, or was did you just kind of have just a new routine? And if so, how how did that routine change from? I mean, we kind of touched on that. I think, yeah, it was kind of it's a new normal, but there's also a lot of chaos and instability in that normal. So you just kind of try and live your life as you can, and just roll with the punches. Roll with the punches. Um, people ask me a lot, like, do you cry? Do you freak out? Yes, I do. But I've learned, that's another thing I've learned is how to control that. Not just freak out 24 hours a day. I give, when I'm upset, I give myself maybe an hour or two. I might need a day to be upset and then I'll get over it yeah. and just move on. Because you have to move on. You can't live your life like that. But a lot of, like I was saying, um... I'm more situationally aware about what's happening around me, surroundings, listening to sounds. Is that true here? Even in the U.S., you're paying more attention? Yeah. Yeah. Because that, I mean, you take that with you wherever you are. Yeah. After that type of situation. Is there anything, this isn't something somebody submitted. I'm curious. Is there anything during kind of the living in a civil war that you you miss to any degree is there any kind of change that's positive or no no i mean yeah i've learned survival tactics that i would not have known otherwise yeah has it made you close has your you and your husband's relationship been strengthened by it do you think yeah but we've gone through a lot yeah and we've had a lot of difficult periods because of it you know but yeah it's totally strengthened us because we've lived through stuff that you know, people like in America and I have, I think that's one of my biggest problems coming back here is seeing my friends who are married 
And like there, I don't want to say envy, but there's just this like sense of loss about how simple and easy. I don't want to say easy, but it's just simpler yeah. how their, you know, their lives are. I know they work hard and it's difficult and they have their own things and I'm not trying to say but what fretting I about the credit card bill instead of fretting about how you're going to feed yeah, yourself. Yeah, and for like the my week. husband, while, you know, there was a, that's another one. There was a bombing in the courthouse and my husband was there for a case that day and I called him and he had literally just walked out the building when the guy blew himself up and his lawyer was there. He was, you know, lucky he didn't die. He was literally right there where the guy blew himself up. So, so your phone yeah. call helped save his life? No. He it was just chance. Oh. Again, like him being in the car bomb, just chance that he survived. But it's stuff like that, like worrying about I don't want to worry about my husband being in a place where a suicide bomber comes, you know? Yeah. I'd rather be worrying about the credit card bill <laughs> any day. Right. Yeah, so I think that's a big struggle when I come back here is trying to... But then I think, yeah, we've gained so much trust and strength through that, but it's still, it's hard. Yeah. It's hard. In your ideal world, would you... Take it back? (laughs) Well, no, not even that, but would you want... So if you got your way, would you want to move... Back to Damascus pre-Civil War and and that's... Or would you want your husband to move to the U.S. and start a new life here if you could have your way? Like, yeah, I would want pre-Damascus. Pre-war Damascus. Rather than you guys making a life here if you Yeah, could. yeah. Now, now, given... Now, given the circumstances, we would like to make a life here. Yeah. Just because it's easier, you know. And I don't know if you can discuss this. Have you had any talks with embassy or I, and I don't even know what department you go to. Have you had talks here since coming back about how to get him back? Well, I'm working with a lawyer. Yeah. But a lot of it, again, is contingent on his situation there. He's got problems leaving the country from the Syrian government. Right. So once that is over, if it will ever be over, I don't know. It's kind of up in the air. So everything here is put on hold until that is resolved. If right. it will be resolved, we don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So the I assume the backup plan is after you have your kid to move back to Damascus? Yeah. I mean, that's basically what is right now is the plan. Unless the situation gets really bad, then no, I'm not going to you know put my kid in that situation. Yeah. But it has gotten better there, I will say. I know the news doesn't really show you that. Right. But it's gotten better, a lot better. Well, that's, I mean, that's pretty much all my, co- I mean, I could keep talking about this. Yeah, for we the could next have a long three hours. conversation. Um, is there anything before we, we call it a wrap? Is there anything you want people listening to, to know about Syria that maybe we haven't discussed or want them to read about or think about? I just think you should broaden your sources of news. Even the sources that you're being told are fake news. Such as? I mean, a lot of the independent reporters in Syria, yeah, they're actually there. They're on the ground. They're talking to Syrians. People in the major news networks do not have reporters on the ground in Syria. They might have someone who is there, but they're not an official reporter. They're just, you know, some speaker for a group or for 
these rebels, whatever. Right. But these are actually independent journalists. They go in there. They're talking to people, people who have escaped the life under the rebel control. So I would, you know, and you don't have to believe it. You don't. I'm not here to say what you should and shouldn't believe, but just open up to it at least. Seek it out. Try and find out as much information that you're being told is not true. Just to read the other side. Because there's always another side to a story. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else you want our listeners to take away? I mean, just... Stop watching the White Hat movies. Yeah. God. <laughs> uh, and they gave them an Oscar. It's like, oh. I don't know. Just, if you're religious, pray for Syria. In general, as a whole. If you're not religious, send good vibes for Syria. Because people need it. It's It's really not an easy life. Is there any way, with the sanctions and everything, to send help over there it's hard so basically best chances to help kind of refugees who've made it here yeah that's what i would do i would help it's better to give your money to people that are actually here because you know where it's going if you're sending money there it's most likely not gonna go it could end up in a half dozen different hands yeah 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 not just on the rebel side you know on the government side or the un the un is like totally corrupt it's unbelievable but yeah, we won't get into that. <laughs> maybe maybe we'll be back for another episode. Have another episode into, about NGOs and how they screw people over. <laughs> Take your money and pocket it all. Um, Amy, it's it's been awesome. I really appreciate yes. it. And thank you for having me. And I would also like you to know that this is the first interview I've ever done. Oh, well, thank I you. I have refused, but because we have such a good friendship over the years. Well, I... I appreciate it. I'm probably going to pester you to come back and talk more. Okay. But <laughs> well, that's I fine. appreciate it. I'll do it um, again. Anytime. Thanks to everybody listening. Yes. And, and uh, thank you, everyone. I appreciate it.